So the title of the practice that we're undertaking on this retreat, or the retreat title, is Natural Awareness and Wisdom. And it needs some explanation, because natural seems to make it sound like, well, it's just falling like manna from heaven, or it's just something to pick up on the ground like mushrooms. And it's not quite that simple. Nevertheless, it is a natural result of the practice that we do undertake here. So, according to the Buddhist teaching, this practice of insight meditation, the practice of vipassana, enables one to realize, this means to realize empirically through your own experience, the, um, the ultimate nature of this mind and this body. Everything that comprises this human life that we are endowed with. But it also enables one to see the common characteristics of all experience of this mind and body, which is that everything that we experience, everything we have experienced, everything that we are experiencing, and everything that we will experience, is impermanent. It also has no ability to provide a stable uh, set of conditions that will uh, prove satisfactory to us, and neither are they substantial in any uh, tangible sense. They are fleeting, ephemeral, conditioned. Uh, these experiences of the mind and the body are just not able to provide what we most seek, maybe in the form of security, safety, stability, enduring happiness. And by practicing mindful awareness, enabling insight to arise, we also will realize the Four Noble Truths. Now you'll remember that the Bodhisattva was born as a uh, royalty, a prince of some sort, about 20 nearly 2,600 years ago in India. And it was his karmic destiny, really, aspiration, to uh, become a Buddha. And so he, after some years living in the relative protection of his father's uh, palaces and kingdom, uh, he was allowed to uh, recognize through the power of his own mind what are called the Four Heavenly Messengers. And the Four Heavenly Messengers for the Bodhisattva was to see an elderly person, to see a sick person, to see a corpse, and to see a renunciate. And these are called Heavenly Messengers because they awoke in the Bodhisattva's mind a clear recognition of the limitations of this human life, if you will, the pursuit of pleasure or happiness through pleasure, and to really deeply understand this inevitable suffering that we all 
experience to grow old, to get sick, and to die. And that so shook the mind of the Bodhisattva that he undertook uh, the spiritual practices of his day to really try to understand the, uh, the value, really, of a human life. And we know the story that he undertook the trainings of the spiritual practices of the teachers of his day and perfected them relatively quickly and easily, but realized this is not the end of suffering. And so he went on his own journey uh, to discover his own path, his own awakening, uh, without the guidance of uh, the Pasana teacher, if you will, to discover, to realize for himself, oh, this is the path of freedom, and this is the experience of peace, or the realization of peace. And when the Bodhisattva did awaken to the truth and realize for himself the end of suffering, the value of a human life, the process of awakening, then it is said that he taught what he had learned, what he had realized. Because there were those, those very sincere people, much like ourselves, that are interested in minimizing or lessening or even uprooting suffering from our lives and from the lives of our uh, friends and family and community. And we certainly know that they're suffering. When he spoke, or when he taught, or when he first spoke, he taught the Four Noble Truths. They're noble. They're called noble because they are, uh, they're beyond our personality. They have some grounding in uh, what I call the facts of life. Not just, you know, the way things are through our conditioning, but the adult facts of life that we will grow old, we will get sick, we will die. And the fourth heavenly messenger was this renunciate that offered some option to the Bodhisattva. There is a way. There is a path. There is a means, if you will, to minimize and eventually uproot suffering. So when he spoke, initially spoke to the uh, accompanying ascetics that he had practiced with, he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. Now, we've probably all heard the Four Noble Truths, so I'm not going to go into great detail about them, but I just want to put the practice we're doing here in the context of the Four Noble Truths. Where is what we're doing here to be found in the Four Noble Truths? Well, the First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha, which is the truth of suffering, or the truth of pain, the truth of insecurity, the truth of the incessant oppressive nature of experience. And this first noble truth is to be investigated, it's to be understood. Because let's face it, we spend a considerable amount of our time looking for happiness, security, stability, pl- 
pleasure, if you will, through our experiences. And we've been looking for a long time, and we have tasted a lot of that pleasure. And somehow we have not yet found the happiness or the enduring peace that we imagine is possible. And so we have to practice. We have to look closely. We have to look beneath the surface of things, of what's going on in this momentary experience of this body and this mind. It's all here. It's all happening, except we don't see it. You know, we don't see very deeply, as I've mentioned, into the structure, the content, the the deep roots of what is going on in our mind, in our body, each moment. And so this practice is really nothing more than learning how to, well, be here. I mean, really, be here. And to really understand where here is, where our feet are on this ground. And where our heart and mind is on this ground. So this first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated, is to be understood. We're certainly doing that here. All you have to do is try to sit still for 45 minutes. And uh, probably you all have discovered some dukkha today. You know, some restlessness, some you know, disappointment, some frustration, some achy body, some tired mind. This is dukkha. You know, so we don't have to look too far to confirm the first noble truth. But there's a depth to the first noble truth that is yet to be revealed. The second noble truth is that craving, clinging, holding on, attachment, is the cause of this dukkha. Well, there's a lot to investigate there. There's a lot to be discovered about the connection between craving and suffering. But just to say that the second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned. And even coming here to be on retreat, to be in relative seclusion, physical seclusion from our usual um, habits of you know, entertainment and distraction and indulgence and pleasure-seeking, just to be temporarily secluded from that for a week, nine days, is a great let it go. It's a big renunciation. It is abandoning the craving that leads to that kind of happiness, or that kind of, well, false happiness, pleasure-seeking happiness. And so, already, we just by being here, even before we start practicing, we are realizing, to some degree, the second noble truth. Putting aside, abandoning, craving. The third noble truth is that... Um, it is possible to realize the end of suffering. And this is to be realized by each one of us, alone, by ourselves. Meaning, we can't buy it. Nobody can give it to us. Nobody can bestow it upon us. Nobody has done it for us. The Buddha did it for himself. You know, and offered us the teaching, the means, the path, for us to do it for ourselves. But it is this realization of the end of suffering that each one of us will, you know, uh, if prevail, if we prevail with our work, will taste momentarily in this retreat for sure, 
and more enduringly uh, if we continue practice. So it's not to say that, or not to lead you to believe that the end of suffering or the end of dukkha is far, far away, you know, decades if not lifetimes in the future. It's not. It's any moment you can see that you're holding on to something and it's causing you suffering to let go. It's not that invisible. It's not that remote. It's not that inaccessible. It's just hard to do continuously. So, this third noble truth is to be realized by our own mind, our own work. And the fourth noble truth is this path, the path uh, to be developed to realize the third noble truth. And this path is the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is essentially eight factors, eight practices, eight qualities of mind to be developed. And they are divided into three trainings. The Eightfold Path is really three trainings. The first of these trainings is Sila which is the purification of our speech and behavior. So that when we speak and when we act, we're not acting impulsively, reactively, but we have a moment to check and see what's the motivation for speaking or acting in this way. And if our motivation is one of confusion or desire or greed or aversion in some sort, then we can exercise some restraint, not act it out, Wait until we see a more wholesome way, a more generous, more understanding, more compassionate way of responding to the situation, the conditions, rather than reacting. And so, even to practice sila, or practice right speech and right action, requires mindfulness. Remembering that mindfulness is the remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And so when we remember to recognize the motivation before speaking and acting, we're practicing mindfulness, and it reveals the opportunity to, oh, to choose wisely, compassionately, generously, how to respond to each situation, rather than to be caught in our reactive, uh, familiar, personal conditioning of our family and our culture and our schooling and our peers. And, we have a choice. And when we are able to recognize the motivation of our speech and actions, we arrest the acting out of what we call transgressive torments. The torments of the mind, desire, aversion, fear, jealousy, envy, self-pity. When we act them out, we cause ourselves and others harm. And you only have to look at the headlines of any newspaper, any day of the week, and you will see a catalog of people not keeping the precepts and causing harm to others yesterday or today. It's just this massive catalog of suffering caused by human uh, ignorance and carelessness. And so when we practice awareness, 
and be and are able to recognize our motivation before speaking and acting, we don't act that way. We don't act in a way that transgresses against others, that causes them harm. It doesn't cause ourselves harm either. And this is a you know, the practice of mindfulness of our intentions before speaking. And it purifies our speech and behavior of, of transgressive torments. And it gives us the opportunity, or to say it prepares the ground for living in harmony with one another. At least living in harmony within yourself. Which is often not easy to do either. Because when we act out transgressively, transgressively in a way that causes harm to ourselves or others, we feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel embarrassed, we feel humiliated, we feel, you know, we hurt ourselves. And so just to have that much awareness, that much mindfulness, is a way of coming to some inner harmony and lays the foundation for outer harmony in our relationships with others. Nevertheless, even if we're able to do that, even if we were able to do that with some consistency, some continuity, and we're not acting out, we may still be obsessing. We may still be caught in ruminating and obsessing and scheming and strategizing of what we'd like to do and like to say in this situation. And so even though we're not acting it out, we're still suffering because our mind is caught in what are known as the obsessive torments of mind. Well, this too requires that we practice mindfulness, which is what we're doing here. Mindful awareness of the present moment will reveal when you're caught in some obsessing state of mind. And you might have noticed it today. You know, when we get frustrated or we get disappointed in our practice or we're struggling to do better, you know, we're, we're caught in some kind of obsessing and as soon as we can recognize that, remembering to recognize that present moment, we just immediately just kind of, whoops, step back, let go a little bit. We're not quite as caught and tangled and blinded by the obsession and we get a little relief. That relief tranquilizes the mind. When we get just a taste of relief from the obsessing mind, we feel calmer. We're less caught up. We're less obsessed. We're less driven. We have more perspective. We have a different perspective on what's going on. You know, to be caught in you know, frustration, obsessing, frustratingly about practice, for example, is a very different experience than being aware, oh, that frustration has entered the mind and you're able to observe it. And so, while we're not practicing in order to get rid of frustration or disappointment or fear or anger, we're practicing in order to recognize them and eventually to understand them. Because just to recognize them as a momentary arising experience, allows us to step back into what I call a dukkha-free zone. It's like, whoa, as soon as we step out of that obsessive state of mind, we got some relief. Less dukkha. It's a dukkha-free zone of sorts. And this purification of mind, purifying the mind of the obsessive 
torments allows us to be secluded from the torments and it's experienced subjectively as calmness, tranquility, and a greater sense of ease, which is not bad. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it's really difficult to be mindful all the time. To remember, recognize for the moment continuously is very difficult. And so the Buddha offered a third training in the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in wisdom. The first was the training in sila, or living in harmony. The second was the training in uh, mindfulness, leading to uh, the purification of mind and tranquility. And the third training is a training in wisdom, which is the practice of insight. And it involves being aware of each moment's experience and understanding deeply the nature or the characteristics of each moment's experience that they're impermanent which flies in the face of our efforts to create a stable, secure, unchanging, permanent and enduring life. I mean, we do that. We spend a lot of time stabilizing, reifying, or just kind of solidifying, hoping for, patching together the conditions that we think will hopefully endure for a long time. Whether it's our relationship, or our career, or our car, or our house, or our finances, or our health, our flexibility, our endurability, everything that we do for sustaining the status quo, if you will, or even making it better flies in the face of this reality that everything is impermanent. So coming to realize that everything that we experience is impermanent is not easy. We can understand it up here. If I asked you, do you know that everything changes? Of course, I mean, everybody knows that things change. But we don't live from that understanding. That's just a, a kind of a mental construct, a nice idea. It's not a way of life for us. We don't live with, from that place of understanding most of the time. Practicing vipassana, insight, will bring you closer to that. It also brings you closer to the understanding of dukkha, as I mentioned in the First Noble Truth, that as much as we seek pleasure, as much as we seek the gratification of getting what we want, we've already gotten a lot of what we want. Are we happy yet? Are we satisfied yet? Yeah, we get a moment of satisfaction and it's really momentary. It doesn't last very long. And then we're on to some, wanting something else. Not satisfied again. And so what we will come to understand through practicing insight is that this satisfaction that we're seeking is illusionary. That's going to take some insight. That, that is not something that's even easy to believe or even to aspire to, let alone to realize and to integrate into our life. But as we practice, as we continue practicing in this way, we'll see how much wisdom there is in learning to let go, to let go of seeking anything 
other than what's necessary to maintain our life. So when we come to these understandings through insight, we purify our understanding. Not just because we've read a book. And you, you can read it in a book, but that doesn't transform the heart. It's really through our own practice of seeing for ourselves, developing this path of wisdom through practicing. And we overcome the latent tendency to get caught in desire and aversion and fear and jealousy and envy, depression, frustration. And when we overcome those latent, or uproot those latent tendencies, then we're not bothered by them anymore. They don't arise. Well, that's the promise of the Pasana. Because it promises to purify our understanding. And the purification of understanding is what leads to, or makes possible, access to peace. The peace of mind. The enduring peace of mind. The sense of well-being in the face of any and all conditions that we'll experience in life. Now that is a steep steep bar. Nevertheless, that's what we're doing here. We have undertaken these three practices of the Noble Eightfold Path training. To purify our speech and behavior by keeping the precepts, to purify our mind by practicing mindfulness moment to moment, and to purify our understanding of this is the way things are beneath the surface. And when we do that, we you know, clearly are going to realize the fourth noble truth. So our, all of our practice here is to realize these four noble truths. The truth of dukkha, check, got that one. The truth of the second noble truth, craving as the cause of dukkha. Got a piece of that one. Uh, the end of dukkha is possible. Mm, maybe tomorrow. And this is the path to be developed, and this is what we're doing. So our practice here is really in the service of realizing the Four Noble Truths. And what the Buddha realized upon his awakening was the path to peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.